Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, this is the story of your police force in action. Dragnet. It was Tuesday, March 25th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide. Detectives in Los Angeles work in pairs. My partner's Ben Romero. He's a sergeant, so am I. My name's Friday. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. I was on the way back from the record bureau, and it was 13 minutes past 11 when I got to room 42. Homicide. That's a hot shot. Somebody grab it. I got it, Ed. At 1245 East Ohini Street, one, two, four, two officers shot. At 1245 East Ohini Street, Street, two officers shot. What have you got, Friday? Read it. Two officers shot. Where's Romero? Right here, Skipper. Okay, you've got one to roll on. Get going. Both Ben and I knew where we were heading. We'd recognized the address. It was the Trapdoor Cafe, a joint in the south end of town that did business with a pretty rough crowd. Thirteen minutes later, we pulled up in front. Two patrolmen had the crowd pretty well pushed back. There was a cruiser car in front of the cafe. The car door was open, and an officer was sprawled across the seat. He was conscious but weak, and one of his pant legs was pretty red. Hello, Sergeant. Hi. How you doing? I've done better. Yeah, well, what happened? Williams and I were cruising. We've been keeping an eye on this cafe lately. Tonight, we decided to take a look. 
And just as we went in, two guys left in a hurry. In the back door. We followed them out into the alley. It was dark out there, and I called to them. I said, hey, fellas, just a minute. I want to talk to you. They stopped? I'll see. One of them whirled. He had a gun in his left hand. He shot both of us. Left hand, huh? Williams went down and out. I went down, but I took a shot at them. No effect. Then I started crawling out here to the car so I could call in. You started crawling? Yeah. Wait a minute, Emerson. Weren't there any people around by that time? Uh, yeah, quite a few ran out after the shots. You mean nobody would help you to the car? That's right. Huh. Did you get a good look at either of the gunmen? Well, one of them was tall. I think he was a redhead. There was something funny about his nose. That's all I saw. It's too dark out there. Williams was closer. I think he got a good look. Joe, the other officer, Williams, he's in pretty bad shape. Was he breathing? He's still alive, Emerson. I don't know how much time he's got. Ambulance? On the way. Okay, let's round up all the men who are in the cafe. We're taking them in. We took all the men back to the city hall. There were 23 in the trapdoor cafe at the time of the shooting. We questioned all of them. One of them said there had been a redhead in the place, but he couldn't describe him. Ben and I left the interrogation room, and we went back to the squad room. Friday, Romero. Got a minute? Yeah, Ed. Come on, Ben. Uh. Sit down. Okay. You got anything from those people you questioned? Nothing we could use. Uh. How's Williams? Pretty bad. When do they operate? Soon as he comes out of shock. Probably in the morning. You boys will be there. Yeah, we will. When the surgeon digs that slug out, get it and mark it for evidence. Yeah. Skipper, them two men shot without asking any questions. They must be hot. Yeah. Same thing occurred to me. When we get that slug, the ballistics can tell us whether that gun's been used on other jobs. We got enough of their modus operandi to have the statistician give us a run-through on the IBM now. One of them is left-handed, and he shoots quick. Okay, be in surgery tomorrow morning at 9. <laughs> Neither Ben or I said much on the way home, but we were both thinking the same thing. I knew the chief was thinking it, too. Here were two men who'd shot a couple of police officers without asking any questions. Now, I suppose you've heard a lot of stories about what the force thinks of cop killers. Sure, we don't like to lose our friends and partners any better than anybody else would. Why not figure it this way? If these two guys would gun a couple of armed police officers, do you think they'd hesitate to shoot you, the unarmed citizen? Next morning at 9 o'clock, Ben and I had scrubbed up and we were in surgery. Williams was on the table. The surgeon started in. A lot of minutes later, he got the slug. As for Williams, they took out seven feet of his intestine and said he might pull through. Report from ballistics. The slug they took out of Williams come from a 44 Smith and Wesson. The same gun was used in a liquor store killing about a month ago. You call the statistician? Yeah, uh huh. She's running all the cards on previous shooting through the IBM machine. She ought to be through about now. Let's take a look. Okay, come on. Hi, Helen. Just second. Okay. Well, that's it for it. These cards will give you all the shootings pulled by two men on foot who shot quick, one of them left-handed. Right. They're all yours. You sure can tell a lot from just a bunch of little holes in these cars, can't you? <laughs> I can't, but this IBM machine can. It never ceases to amaze me. Okay, shall we check the cards, huh? Yeah, sure, sure. 
Wait a minute, Ben. Here we are. Huh? Yeah. Here's that liquor store killing ballistics tied the Smith & Wesson in on. Same gun that Emerson Williams was shot with? Well, it checks out. The liquor store was in the same neighborhood as the Trapdoor Cafe. Same gun, huh? Got to be. How long ago? A month ago, yeah. Ben, take the DR number off this card and let's pull the crime report on that job. We pulled the crime report out of the files. It said that there was only one witness to that liquor store killing a month ago. That witness was a woman. Miss Forbes, I'm sorry to disturb you like this, but we'd like to ask some questions about that liquor store killing you witness a little over a month ago. Well, I told the police everything I knew about it then. Yeah, we know, but maybe you wouldn't mind telling us again, huh? Oh, no, I guess not. I, I've been trying to forget it to tell the truth. It was pretty terrible, and I really didn't see so very much because I was awful scared. I understand. But try to describe again just what happened, will you? Well, it was about 10 o'clock at night. I was walking down the street toward home when I re- realized I was all out of cigarettes. Well, I was right in front of the liquor store then, so I went in. The clerk was behind the counter, and there were two men standing there arguing. What's the idea of changing your mind? I thought we was going to get bourbon. No, let's get the wine. I want bourbon. Gosh, too much. Wine's good enough. The rest of them want bourbon, too. We better talk to them. Well, okay. We'll be back when we make up our mind, mister. The two men walked out of the store, and the clerk smiled at me and shrugged his shoulders. I bought a pack of cigarettes and turned to leave. But just then, the two men came back in again, and each of them had a gun in his hand. This is stick-up, mister. The clerk just sort of crumpled at the floor. I couldn't believe my eyes, but that's just how it happened. The men said this is a stick-up, and then they shot him right away. Get over against the wall, lady, or you'll get the same. One of them punched a no-stay on the cash register. I, I was shaking, so I almost caved in. He scooped the money out of the drawer and stuffed it into his pocket. And then... And the other one went over to where the liquor clerk was lying, face down. He knelt down beside the clerk and he put his gun against the clerk's spine. Then they both ran out of the store. It was terrible. That clerk, he was lying there, helpless and wounded me. They delivered me. Yeah, Miss Forbes, I understand. Oh, Miss Forbes, uh, you said that both of the men had guns? Yes. One of the guns was black and the other was sort of, sort of fancy looking. What do you mean, Miss Forbes? Well, it was real shiny. Nickel plating? I wouldn't know about that, but it was shiny. There were two guns, huh? Yes. Well, now about the men themselves. Well, I, I was so scared their faces just didn't register with me. The one who, one who shot the clerk in the back was sort of stocky. That's about the best I can do. Well, you mentioned in the report that one of the men was left-handed. Yes, I do remember that. Uh-huh. Now, look, Miss Forbes, this is very important to us. One of the men was a redhead? Redhead? Why, no, I didn't see any redhead. Skipper, me and Joe's run right smack into a stone wall on this thing. What's the complication? Well, there's more than one, Ed. In the first place, we know that the 44 Smith & Wesson was used in both shootings. But the descriptions of the men involved don't check. Police officer Emerson said he thought the man at, uh... Uh, that shot him and Williams outside the trapdoor cafe was a tall, left-handed redhead. Said there's something funny about his nose. You think Williams got a better look at him? Well, he probably did, but Williams isn't strong enough to talk yet. And a girl that witnessed the liquor store killing a month ago said that one of those men was left-handed. But she said neither of them was a redhead. And on top of all that, now we've got two guns to worry about. The girl mentioned two guns, so we checked the autopsy report on that liquor clerk. 
And Ed, the bullet that actually killed him came from a thirty-two twenty, not a forty-four Smith and Wesson. That fact didn't get any publicity at the time, did it? No, it didn't. Okay, we won't give it any publicity now either. Well, Lawdown, it's just the forty-four Smith and Wesson we're after. Because if whoever owns the thirty-two twenty finds out it's hot, we'll never get it. Anything else? Well, we sent teletypes to all outlaying stations in neighboring cities. Told them that if they get any red-headed suspects, no matter what charge they got them on, to hold them for questioning. Yeah. Now, how about this thirty-two twenty, the actual murder weapon? Any leads on it? We've got one, Ed. We've been checking the records, and we discovered that four hours after the liquor store killing, a taxi driver in the neighborhood was shot and robbed. The slug was pretty well mashed, but there was enough to tell it was from a thirty-two twenty. So we're going over to question the taxi driver now. Good. Well, I think you boys are on the right trail. So far, what we've got is mostly unrelated facts, but sooner or later, those facts have all got to tie in at some point along the line. Find that point. Yeah, find the point. Find the tie-in. Well, Ben and I went over to see the taxi driver, a guy who was living on borrowed time. Yeah, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning when it happened. I got a call to pick up a fare near 105th and Avalon, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I got there, somebody came over, pulled open my cab door and said, this is a stick-up. Then Bluey, you let me have it. Just like that, huh? Yeah, just like that. Same deal as others, Joe. Itchy trigger finger. Yeah. Did you get any kind of a look at the fella? Look, no, no. It's too dark. Uh-huh. Hey, um, according to the report, you got shot in the chest. Yeah, that's right. Oh, you're maybe wondering how come I'm still alive, huh? I'll tell you, pal, it's like something you'd see in a bad movie, you know? You know, I'm carrying a few silver dollars with me. Nine of them, to be exact. So I decided to stick them in my breast pocket. Well, Mr. That just saved my life. The slug hit them silver dollars. It's one for the book, huh? Yeah, you said it. Well, thanks very much. Say, incidentally, we had a little trouble finding you today. You weren't at the stand you operated out of last month. Oh, look, look, I, I'm not only not at my usual stand, I'm not driving a hack no more. Oh? Look, after what happened, are you kidding? No, I don't want to push my luck any further than it's been pushed. Yeah, I figure I had it, you know? And about that time, Ben and I were beginning to figure we'd had it. We were getting nowhere fast. We had a few informants nosing around, but so far they hadn't come up with any leads. Well, Ben and I followed up all the teletypes that poured in. We just got back from Santa Ana where we'd been questioning a red-headed suspect, and we'd flopped in the squad room when Chief Backstrand's door opened. Friday, Romero. Got a minute? Yes, Kim. Any luck with the Santa Ana redheads? No, none at all. I guess you haven't heard the latest. We just now got back in town, Skipper. Early this morning, another cab driver got shot. What? Yeah. Man came up to his taxi, opened the door, said, this is a stick-up, and shot him. Well, it went through one leg and into the other, but the driver managed to start his cab and drove over to a cafe. He called in from there. Uh, boys recovered the slug? Yeah. It came from the same 44 Smith & Wesson that was used in the other two jobs. The cab driver get a look at the gunman? Yeah, briefly. Was it the redhead? No. Oh, the stocky guy. He wasn't redheaded and he wasn't stocky. All the driver knows. Well, that's great. Skipper, this is beginning to sound like a guns a month club. You reckon somebody's renting them guns out? Well, they're passing the guns around all right, but I think they're working together. The way they operate indicates that. Yeah, the trigger-happy routine. Killing is apparently more than a business to them. It's pleasure, too. That's why we've got to get to them fast. Come over here. All right. Come on, Ben. Here. Take a look at this map. Uh-huh. Here's the trapdoor cafe... And over here's the liquor store. And down here is where the first cab driver got shot. Mm-hmm. And here's where the second one got it. 
All of the shootings have taken place within an area of ten square blocks. Okay. Tonight we're going to throw a blockade around that whole area. Good. It'll go into effect at 10 p.m. At 9.45 p.m., cars and officers started drifting into the area by twos and threes. And at 10, when Backstrand, Ben, and I arrived, the whole area was sewed up tighter than a tick. Davis? Yeah, All set? All set. We got a primary line and a secondary line. If anyone tries to make a break, we'll pick them up in the secondary. Okay. Friday and Romero here will cruise around the area with me. Go to work, men. Every car in the area was shaken down. The same process was also followed on all persons on foot. The blockade went on all night. By the end of that time, we'd brought in 217 suspects. 26 of them were redheads. What's your name? Henry Wagner. Where do you work? Lumber yard. Which one? First star. What time did you get through work last night? About six, I guess. What'd you do then? At some dinner. Where? Uh, Harry's Grill. Then what? Shot a little pool. Look, I tell you, I ain't done nothing. Now, uh, let's go back to the day before yesterday. And that's the way it went all day long. We shot question after question at them, working them gradually back to the days on which the shootings had taken place. When it was all over, we got six men wanted in other cities on various charges. We got quite an assortment of guns and knives. But as far as the shootings were concerned, we got nothing. Well, I guess that's the last of them. Oh, I was running out of questions there at the end. You two boys better go on home and get some sleep. Well, I was kind of figuring on checking back over the reports to see if we might have overlooked something. I said go on home. You two boys have been at it for 32 hours straight. Look at you. You're both so groggy you can hardly stand up. You need sleep. It's uh, 4 p.m. now. Don't come back until 10 p.m. When I walked into the squad room at 10, Ben was already there. An informant had just phoned in a new lead. He told Ben he'd heard about a gang that had been hanging out down around the Devere bungalow court in the south end of town. We knew that the Devere was close to the trapdoor cafe... So we went over to talk to the manager. Joe, I've been meaning to ask you. Uh, you checked on how Williams is getting along? Yeah, I did. I called the hospital this afternoon. It's going to be all right. Oh, that's fine. Well, here we are. Yeah, manager's office. Still got a light on. Yeah? I'm Sergeant Friday, police. This is Sergeant Romero. Yeah? We'd like a little information. Why, sure. Come in. Thank you. What can I do for you? Well, did you hear anything about a gang that hangs out down around here anywhere? Gang? Well, no. How about your tenants here? Any of them ever been in trouble, to your knowledge? No. This ain't exactly the best neighborhood in town, but we try to keep things under control. Once in a while, one of them will get out of line, but when that happens, we heave them out of here. You heaved anybody out lately? Yeah, I did. Phoned his wife a few weeks ago. They had a fight in one of the bungalows. She took a shot at him, but she missed party by the name of Stuba, Carl Stuba. What did this Stuba look like? Oh, sort of tall, skinny. Was he a redhead? No. Now, we'd like to take a look at that bungalow that he lived in. Sure, sure. Help yourself. Down the end there, number five. Still vacant. Well, I guess that does it. Stuba didn't leave a thing behind Matter of fact, we don't have anything to prove that this stube is tied in at all. We're only working on a hunch. Hey, Joe, look. Where? Up on the wall there, just by the window. Oh, yeah. 
Now, that plaster there, it's newer than the rest. You got a knife? Mm, I sure have, boy, and I'm carving. That manager'd be awful unhappy with me if he is here. Yeah, he would. Yeah, it might. Hey, Joe, here it is. A slug. They plastered right over it. Okay, dig it out and let's hope it matches. It matched. The slug from the wall came from the same 44 Smith & Wesson that had been used in the other shootings. So now we had a name to work on, Carl Stuba. But he'd done a good job of dropping out of sight. Well, the next day, Ben thought he had another lead. I've just been talking to another informant, Joe. He says he heard that there's a fella down in that neighborhood been trying to sell a gun lately. What kind of a gun? Nickel-plated with steer horn handles. Nickel-plated? Well, maybe that's our 44 Smith & Wesson. Maybe. Did the informant know who this man was? Said the fella's name was Alonzo. Yeah. Alonzo who? Just Alonzo. That's all he knew. So now we had two names. Stuba and Alonzo. But no men to go with him. So we went back to making the rounds of the substations, interviewing red-headed suspects. We took a few of them to Williams, who was home from the hospital by now, but he couldn't identify any of them as the man who shot him. Still, we kept checking. Finally, we got around to the 77th Street station. We questioned the suspects they were holding there, and we just started to leave when one of the officers called us. Hey, Sarge, yeah. we're holding somebody else you might want to look at. Redhead? No. What's the choice? Suspicion of burglary? Small job. Oh, I don't know. What do you think, Ben? What's special about him? He lives in the same neighborhood where those shootings took place. All right. Where you got him? Down here. You admit anything? No. He's pretty surly. Here we are. Thanks. Hi. What do you want? I'm Sergeant Friday. This is Sergeant Romero. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Look, I already told the other cops all I know. I didn't steal no radio from that jerk. What's your name? We've been through all that once. Come on, what's your name? Jackson. Alonzo Jackson. Alonzo. I looked at Ben and Ben looked at me. This could be the Alonzo who'd been trying to peddle that Smith & Wesson. Ben and I both knew here was one suspect we'd have to be real careful with. Alonzo, um... According to the records, this burglary you're suspected of took place on the night of the 27th. Look, how many times do I have to tell you guys they didn't have anything to do with it? You got an alibi for that night? Sure, I got an alibi. I was out with a couple of friends, I can tell you. What's your friend's name, Lonzo? One of them's Cranley, the other's Stuba. Stuba, the guy who used to live in the bungalow court. Well, we told Alonzo he'd have to produce his two friends to give him an alibi for the burglary charge, and he bit. He went with us, and he pointed out where Stuba was living now. No wonder we hadn't been able to find him. There was a little shack at the back of a lot behind two houses. We thought it was a chicken coop at first. We took Alonzo back to the station, then we picked up Stuba. He was surprised to see us and not very happy. We took him in. Next, Alonzo gave us Crandall's address. Yeah? Mr. Crandall in? No. Will he be back soon? I don't know. Who are you? Sergeant Friday, Sergeant Romero, police. What do you want with him? Oh, nothing important, lady. We just wanted him as a witness. Oh. Well, I don't know just when he'll be back. Probably an hour or two. Okay, thanks. We went down the street away, and we staked out in the car. We sat there for about five hours, and then Ben nudged me in the ribs. Hey, Joe. Huh? Joe, take a look. Coming along the sidewalk. Yeah. And he's got red hair. 
Come on. Crandall. Huh? Your name Crandall? Who are you? Friday Romero, police. Police? What do you want? With me? I, I haven't done nothing. Well, then you got nothing in the world to worry about. Come on. We questioned Crandall for an hour, but he wouldn't give an inch. Denied everything. Then we put him in a car and we drove over to Officer Williams' house. I left Ben in the living room with Crandall while I went in Williams' bedroom. Hello, Sarge. Hi, Williams. How are you doing? Yeah, a little better, I think. That's fine. Look, we've got another redhead outside. <laughs> Bring him in. Okay. All right, Crandall, come on in here. Who's in there? Why'd you bring me over here? Come on in here. How about it, Williams? That's the guy. No, I'm That's not. That's the I... guy that shot me. Well, Crandall? No. Yeah. I... It... it was an accident. I didn't mean to shoot him. It was an accident. Once Crandall got started, he talked his head off. He also admitted being in on the liquor store killing, but insisted he was only the lookout. We took him back to the station and got his whole story down on a tape recorder. Yeah, he was left-handed. Then we went back to Alonzo, who didn't know we had Crandall's confession. We met the chief in the hall outside the room where they were holding Alonzo. You about ready to tie the knot? Oh, hope so, chief. But Alonzo hasn't given any yet, and we still haven't found those guns. We've got one of them. Which one? The Smith & Wesson. Stuba popped about that one ten minutes ago. Said he left it with his girl. A couple of the boys are on their way over to get it now. That's good, Ed. That leaves just the thirty-two twenty. You haven't mentioned the thirty-two twenty to Alonzo, have you? No. He still thinks we're after that Smith and Wesson, and that's the way we're going to play it right now. Go ahead. Look, how much longer are you guys going to hold me here? Didn't you check with those friends of mine? Alonzo, we got a tip that you've been trying to sell a gun lately. A gun? Yeah, forty-four Smith and Wesson. Oh. No, it's not true. That Smith & Wesson's been using a couple of robbery jobs this month, and we think it's your gun. That's a lie. Any proof of that? Why, yeah. Sure, I got proof of that. Uh, I used to have a gun, but it wasn't a Smith & Wesson. Look, if I tell you where it is, that ought to convince you, shouldn't it? It'll help things. Okay. I sold it to a neighbor of mine. He gave me seven bucks. I'll give you his address. You sure it's not a Smith & Wesson? Sure, I'm sure. It's a thirty-two twenty. Yeah, it worked. We went to the neighbor's address, and he admitted having bought the thirty-two twenty, but said he lent it to a friend who'd never returned it. The friend had hocked the gun to a barber. The barber gave him 15 bucks and a haircut for it. We finally got it from the barber, and we came back to the station. I'm all set, Joe. I'll be in the next room. Just give me the nod. Okay. Hello, Alonzo. Hey, you got the gun. Yeah, we got the gun. Well, now maybe you'll believe I'm on the level. Okay, if I go now? I guess we won't be able to hold you here much longer. You can say that again, brother. You gotta save a lot of time for you to listen to what I've been trying to tell you all along. I guess you're right, Alonzo. Sure, I'm right. You know, you guys would be a lot better off you believe guys like me the first time we tell you something. Instead of running. I was only a lookout. I was outside. Huh? It was the other two who pulled that one. Huh? Stuber and Alonzo. Alonzo killed the clerk. Hold it, Alonzo. Hold it, Alonzo. All right, Alonzo, that's enough. Now, come on. How about it? Well, what's the use? All right. That's like he said. Okay, Ben, bring the recorder in here. Alonzo's ready to make a record now. (laughs) 
By playing back Crandall's statement that we'd recorded earlier, we got a full confession from Alonzo. We took the three of them out and had them reenact the four shootings, and we photographed it on sound film. Crandall, the redhead, was the one who'd shot the two police officers, but he was only the lookout for the liquor store killing, which explains why the girl witness didn't see him in the store. Stuba and Alonzo were the ones who pulled that job. And Alonzo, the worst of the bunch, was the one who put the thirty-two twenty against the spine of the wounded clerk. The three of them took turns at shooting the cab drivers and robbing them. That accounted for the mixed-up descriptions, including all that left-handed business. Two of the three suspects happened to be left-handed. Well, that was the crop. Crandall, Alonzo, Stuba. Four shootings, three robberies, four attempted murders, one murder. The three men were tried and convicted. They're all in the state penitentiary. Crandall's there for life. Alonzo and Stuba, they'll be executed next week. File it, will you, Ben? Case closed. Dragnet! The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. You have just heard the second in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of C.B. Horrell, Chief of Police, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Radio Officer Delmer E. Cook of the Los Angeles Police Department, who, on the afternoon of December 6th, 1948, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to robbery detail. There's a potential killer on the loose in your city. Eighteen women have been beaten and robbed by this man. The newspapers call him the werewolf. Your job is to get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files from beginning to end, from crime to punishment. Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday morning, February 2nd. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were working the early morning watch out of robbery detail. Detectives in Los Angeles work in pairs. My partner's Ben Romero. He's a sergeant and so am I. My name's Friday. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. I was on the way back from the teletype room and it was 3 a.m. when I got to room 27A. Robbery detail. 
Hi, Ben. What's up? Keep the coat on, Joe. Just had a hot shot call. Coming, Skipper? Right behind you. Let's go, Freddy. Well, what was it, Ed? Another woman robbed, almost beaten to death. Uh, well, how many does that make? About 18 in six weeks. Is that right, Skipper? Yeah, 18 too many. Come on down these stairs to the garage. Yeah. What about that suspect we had, Ed? You mean Martin? Yeah. Had to release him this morning. But I got a good tail on him, Henderson. Yeah. We got any reports yet? Nothing definite to hold him for. Here's the garage. Let's hustle it. Right. Then if this isn't Martin's job, Skipper, and he's not the right man... Then we start all over again, and we work night and day till we find the right man. Here's the car. Let's go. Ben, you drive. Yeah, all right. How do the victims describe this guy, Ed? Pretty sketchy. Supposed to be tall, dark, long black hair. Last woman said he had a face like an animal. Something like a dog. Or a wolf. A wolf? Yeah. She said... Something like a werewolf. Something like a werewolf. We almost had to be that, judging from the way he operated. He was either an animal or a raving maniac. One thing we were sure of, he was smart and he was dangerous. For almost two months, he'd prowled the streets in a stolen car in the early morning, usually between 3 and 5 a.m., and the victims were always lone women, most of them waitresses, coming to work or going home. He dragged them into the car, robbed them, beat them until they were unconscious, and then throw the body out into the street. That's just what we found when we pulled up to the curb near the corner of 8th and Grand. One cruiser car was already there, and so was the ambulance. About a dozen people were standing around looking at the crumpled figure of a woman sprawled out on the sidewalk. Two officers were talking to the only witness, a thin, sallow-faced newsboy. His story didn't give us much to go on. Like I was telling these cops, uh, or these officers, sir, I was walking up 8th Street on my way home as usual when I see this blue Chevy sedan pull up down a block there a little way and dump out the dame's body. Well, actually, I, I don't know what to think. Then. You get a look at the license plate? Well, well, no, I didn't. Tell you the truth, I could hardly keep from... Well, I was just plain scared. Mm. What did you do after you saw him throw the body out, son? Well, I just stood there for a minute, and the fellow in the car drove right on past me. Did you get a look at him? Yeah, I sure did. How close were you when he drove past? Well, I was, couldn't have been more than, well, eight or ten feet away. Uh. I was right over there by the street light near the curb. Would you know this man if you saw him again? I don't know about his height or his build or his weight, but, mister, his face I'll never forget. Why do you say that? So it was just like the paper says about him. Right, right here on the front page. Here, read it. See? Woman says attacker looked like werewolf. That's all the newsboy could tell us. The suspect drove a blue sedan. He had a face like a werewolf. We covered the neighborhood for clues, and we questioned a dozen people, but we got nowhere. We took the witness's name and address, and then we drove down a couple of blocks to an all-night gas station. 14-hour off the next I'm going in here and call the office and see if Henderson's called in on Martin. We might still have a suspect. Right, Skipper. Looks as mad as a wet hornet, doesn't it, Joe? Yeah. Did you get a good look at that woman's face when they moved her in the ambulance? Yeah. Sure does like to mess him up. I don't know how we're going to get him, Ben, but we better do it fast. Next time, it'll probably be murder. Oh, here comes the Skipper, Joe. Uh, uh Uh-oh. Doesn't look good. What is it, Ed? Just talked to Henderson. He tailed Martin to a bar in Long Beach. 
He hasn't been out of his sight for two minutes since yesterday. Martin's clear. And we're right back where we started. Yeah, with one more half-dead woman in the hospital. Well, how about that stolen car, Skip? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Get that radio up. Okay. Code 3, ambulance dispatched. Attention, all units, on Grand Avenue between Venice and Washington. A woman, victim of robbery and attack. Code 3, ambulance to task. Code 3, red light and siren. Come on, Friday, let's roll. We couldn't be sure, but it sounded like another one. Six minutes later, we were there. Same story, werewolf. The next day, the chief ordered the number of cruiser cars doubled in the central district. This was for the early morning watch with plain clothesmen to back them up. Then the newspapers played it vague, and in two days, the story was on the front page of every paper in town. Maybe that should have made the werewolf lay low, but it didn't. Because at four o'clock that morning, while Ben and I were patrolling with the other cars, he got his 20th victim. Attention, all units. Whittier between Soto and Matthews. A woman, victim of 211, an attack. Code 3. Ambulance dispatched. Here's a report on that blue sedan he used the other night, Joe. Found it out on Anaheim Telegraph Road. Any luck with it? Not one fingerprint we can use. Anything else? Nothing. Well, how about the auto theft detail? Same old story, Joe. He steals a car, uses it once, and then drops it. Never leaves a thing behind. Well, that's great. We're sure moving fast. How about that big guy you picked out of the lineup this morning? Oh, I checked his alibi. It's perfect. Hmm. Now we haven't got even half a clue. Yeah. Well, come on. Let's check with Ed. He's instructing the police women on a plan for tonight. All right. Now you've heard the reports, you understand how the suspect operates and what you're to do. So. Remember, all of you forget you were ever policewomen. Change the way you walk, the way you carry yourselves. That's the part you're playing, all right? Okay. And be careful and don't take any chances. All right, Freddy. Okay, Ed. Now, just to make sure you look the part, we're spotting each one of you at different restaurants and coffee shops throughout the central district. And from 7 o'clock tonight until daylight tomorrow, each one of you is going to be a waitress. You got that? Yeah. Okay, Ben, you want to give them their assignments? Okay, Joe. Well, here's the way it lines up. Marge Kissel at the Top Hat Cafe. That's on 9th Street between Alpharad and Westlake. Okay. And Katie Wells, Joe's Coffee House, Brooklyn Soto. Right. Pat Fielding at the all-night steakhouse on Figueroa Street between Florence... No, the trick of using decoys to lure criminals into a trap wasn't exactly new, but, well, it was just one of the old tricks that we figured might land the werewolf behind bars. At 7 that night, Ben and I made the rounds and found each of the policewomen on her job as a waitress. Well, the overall plan was simple. The girls were to leave the different restaurants between 3 and 5 a.m. that morning and pretend they were walking home. We mapped different courses for each one of them to throw out as much bait as possible and yet not to make it look suspicious. Each policewoman, from the time she left the restaurant and stepped out into the deserted streets, would be pretty much on her own. We had officers planted all along the way at designated intervals, but a big element of chance and danger was still there. All we could do was cross our fingers and hope. How much more time, Joe? Let me see. She's doing two minutes. Yeah. Waiting gets on your nerves. And it won't be long. This corner doorway's pretty good lookout, boy. Yeah. Wait a minute. Listen. Who is it, Joe? Can you see? Get back. What is it? Wait a minute. It's Marge Kissel. There's a man following her, a big guy. If it's the werewolf, where's his car? I don't know. Maybe he changed his plans. Get back. Here they come. Get a look at him, Joe? Oh, pretty good. Not too suspicious. Might be coincidence. Well, I got a pretty good lead. Come on, let's go. Stay back in the shadows. Hey, Joe. Hmm? 
So where'd the guy go to? I lost him. The little coffee shop up on the next corner, see? Take a look. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's opening the door. He's turning on the lights. Yeah. Looks like a false alarm, Joe. Well, let's check him anyway. Well, I didn't think we'd be that lucky on the first try, and we weren't. We asked the man a few questions, and it didn't take him long to show us he wasn't our man. He owned the coffee shop. So, Ben and I went back and took up our posts again and waited for the next decoy. We covered that ten-block course six times that morning, back and forth, following the bait, but it was almost as if the guy could sense a trap. Not once did we get a nibble. By the time our last decoy finished the route, it was almost daylight. Joe, I never was so glad to see that sun come up in my whole life. My feet feel like they're puffing right up out of my shoes. Yeah, me too. Come on, let's get over to the car and check on the other squad out in Boyle Heights, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh. Hit the radio, will you, Ben? Yeah. Joe, there must be some easier job on the force than this. Yeah, you and me both. Now, let's see what happened to the others, huh? 80K to Unit 104K, come in. 104K to Unit 80K, go ahead. 104K, this is Friday. You do any good out there? This is Miller. I'll call Curtis. Stand by. 80K to 104K, Roger. What do you think, Joe? Maybe a buy? I don't know. Oh, this guy seems to work like a mind reader. Well, he can't win all of them. 104K to Unit 80K. This is Curtis. Go ahead. This is Friday, Al. How'd you do out there? Any luck? Just checked in the last gal, Joe. 80 Welch, not a sign. Okay, Al. Have the men check in. 80K clear. KGPL. Okay, let's go, Ben. When we finally got back to the office that morning, both Ben and I were ready for some sleep, but it didn't look like we were going to get it. We just about finished going through the overnight reports for some kind of a lead when the phone rang. Robbery Friday. Hi, Joe. This is Wilkerson, Auto Theft. Hi, Wilkie. You got something for us? Not much, Joe, but it might work into something. Just got a report in on a pair of stolen license plates. Oh? Yeah. I'm not much of a hawkshaw, but I figure there's just a chance it might be your werewolf boy. How come? I don't know. Maybe just a hunch. After 13 years in this business, you get to know thieves pretty well. Sometimes you got to even think like them. Okay, Wilkie, thanks. We'll check by in a couple of minutes. Right, Joe. What do you have to say? pair of license plates stolen last night. Wilkie's got a hunch it could have been our man. Well, it might be an angle, Joe. If that werewolf guy'd hang on to one car long enough, we'd have a chance at him. Oh, he's too smart for that. I don't know, Joe. Sooner or later, he's going to make a mistake. Yeah. Come on, let's check with Wilkie. Well, we checked with Wilkerson. We got the best piece of news we'd had in days. On the average, 95% of stolen cars are recovered or located within 24 hours. In the remaining 5%, Wilkerson, by a simple process of elimination, narrowed down the number of cars the suspect might be driving. Wilkie figured six cars. There they are. Now, I'll bet you if you picked up your man tonight, he'd be in one of these cars. Let me see, huh? Two-door black sedan, yellow convertible, another sedan, green, blue coupe, black coupe, and a gray convertible. Well, that's good work, Wilkie. At least we got something to look for now. Yeah, you're right, Joe. Uh, Wilkie, you got the numbers of those stolen plates you're talking about? Yeah, right here, Ben. They're already on the hot sheet. Good. Keep us posted, huh? As usual, Ben. See you later, Wilkie. That's a good break, Ben. Something to keep us busy tonight. Tonight? What do you mean? We're setting another trap. Same thing as last night. Same police women, same everything. Yeah, only this time let's hope he steps into it. You know, Joe, this werewolf character is getting me mad. (laughs) 
That night, we followed in our own footsteps. We planted the policewomen decoys in three separate districts, and a few minutes before 3 a.m., our squad of men took up their positions. The same policewomen went to their waitress jobs in the same restaurants, and Ben and I and the rest of the men stood in darkened doorways or empty filling stations or whatever cover we could find. And we waited and waited. What time is it, Joe? Let me look. Half past four. Oh, thank you. Any sign, Joe? No, nothing yet. Come on, stay in the shadows. That's the way it went all through the early morning. The same plan over and over again until daylight. Ben and I had check in at the station, go over the late stolen car reports with Wilkie, catch a few hours sleep at home, and then come back and do it all over again. The next night, and the next morning, and the night after that, and the morning after that. Five days later, Ben and I were ready to call it quits. I'll admit it, Joe, I can't figure. The guy's either psychic or else he can smell a cop a mile away. Yeah, well, at least we got that stolen car angle left. Did you check with Wilkie yet this morning? I'll give him a call now. All right. Auto theft, Wilkerson. This is Ben, Wilkie. Got anything for us this morning? Yeah, I'm just going to call you. You fellas ought to let me solve your cases for you. Why? What'd you get? The boys picked up three of those six stolen cars since late yesterday. Great. Now, what does that leave us with? I hear the three still missing. Yeah. Four X-ray 763. Yeah. Five six young 342. Uh-huh. Six one Robert 385. Yeah. Got those? Yeah, thank you, Wilkie. Uh, check you later. Good news? Remember those six missing cars? Yeah. Wilkie says the boys found three of them since late yesterday. Here's what's still out. The blue coupe, the yellow convertible, and the gray convertible. Yeah. Well, this feels like the right track for a change, Ben. Righty. Romero, got a minute? Sure thing, Skipper. Come on, Joe. What do you got, Ed? A woman up in Hollywood just called in with this. She said she walked down to the corner from her house last night to mail a letter. On the way back, a guy pulled up in the car and tried to drag her inside. Any description? Big, heavy, set, dark, same thing. Well, how'd you get away from him, Skipper? She said she started running as soon as he made a motion toward her. When he saw her run up the steps of her house, he jumped back in the car and took off. Well, how come she didn't call in before this? She hasn't got a phone. She's afraid to leave the house again until this morning. Sounds good, Chief. You got her address there? Yeah, yeah. Mrs. Tom Burdick, 1237 Wilcox, apartment 10. Come on, Ben. This might be what we're looking for. Who is it? Who's there? Sergeant Friday, ma'am. Police. I'm Sergeant Romero, Miss Birdie. This is my partner, Sergeant Friday. We come out to check on your call about that little trouble last night. Oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to be much help to you. I was so frightened about all I could do was just run. Well, could you add anything to the man's description, Miss Burdick? I mean, other than what you told the chief on the phone? Well, now, honestly, I don't think I can. All I saw was this tall, dark man jumping out of his car and starting for me. He had a heavy build and seemed to me, well, a large head... With lots of long black hair. Uh-huh. Uh, Miss Burdick, uh, would you recognize this man if you ever saw him again? Well, I think I might. He was such an unusually big man, almost frightened me to death. Well, just one more question, Miss Burdick. Could you describe the car this man was driving when he approached you? His car? Mm-hmm. Why, yes. It was a gray convertible. Miss Burdick, are you sure of that? Yes, I'm sure of it. A gray convertible. 
Thank you, Miss Burdick. That's all we wanted to know. Sometimes when you're on a case, you can chase yourself around in circles for weeks trying to fit together just two little pieces of a yard-long jigsaw puzzle. And a lot of the time, you find the answer where you least expect it. But once you get that feeling you're after the right man in the right way, there's nothing that can shake you. When Ben and I got back to headquarters, we went straight to the chief's office with the story, and we had him stake out the gray convertible. In other words, if any detective or officer spotted the car, he reported it back to us, but he stayed away from it. We figured that there probably weren't more than two of the victims who could take the witness stand and identify the man who robbed and beat them. Not with a smart defense lawyer, anyway. So there was only one way to catch this suspect. Red-handed. Here they are, Joe. Both sets of license numbers for that gray convertible. Here are the original, and here are the numbers on the stolen plate. Good. Everybody got a hot sheet? From the chief all the way down to the janitor. Fine. Now let's get together with them, huh? Hot shot, Joe. Grab it. I got it. On the corner of California and Oakwood, a woman badly beaten. On the corner of California and Oakwood, a woman badly... Come on, Ben. Another one. But, Joe, it's broad daylight. Yeah. Doesn't figure, does it? Come on. That vacant lot over, Joe. Two plain clothesmen and uniformed officers were keeping the crowd back. An ambulance was drawn up by the curb, but it was empty. When we got down to the rear of the lot, we found out why. They were waiting for the coroner. The woman was young, not much more than 30. Her body was half sprawled across the muddy ground, and her face was turned upward. It had been badly beaten. They figured it happened last night, Sergeant. Have the fingerprint men been notified? Yeah. How about the crime lab? Just called them. That's good. Now, let's keep everybody out of the area till they get here. All right, Sergeant. Uh, who found the body? One of the kids in the neighborhood. Owen was dead when he found her. Did she live around here? Well, about a half mile away. I hear she's got three kids. Or she had three kids. Uh-huh. You've seen enough, Ben? Well, let's get on back to headquarters. All the way back to headquarters, Ben and I planned our next move. And by the time we got to Ed Backstrand's office, we knew exactly what had to be done. When we told him about the werewolf murder, he didn't say a thing for a minute. He just stared across the room at the calendar on the wall. Then he brought his hand down hard against the desk. Friday, Romero, I'm only going to say this once, so get it straight. That guy's pulled his last job in this city. He's through robbing and beating women, and he's through with murder. I've given you time to track him down, and now I want him in. No stalls and no excuses, I want him. I don't care how many men you use, and I don't care how you get him, but get him. That's all. Ben and I worked all that afternoon right through dinner, up until 8 o'clock. By that time, the overall plan was down on paper and already in action. It was one of the biggest things we'd ever tackled, and, well, we didn't know if it was going to work. We only knew it had to work. We had a squad of 65 cars to stretch out over 40 square miles of the city in one big dragnet. The blockade itself would be stationary most of the time, and working inside it would be two cars, 14 policewomen as decoys, with two plain clothesmen assigned to watch each policewoman. If and when the werewolf was sighted in the gray convertible, we'd automatically take over the police radio for the whole city, and Backstrand would direct the chase from headquarters. A little after eight, we had coffee and hamburgers, and we went to Ben's for a few hours. Ben tucked his kid in bed as usual, and then he laid down for a nap. 
I talked to his wife until I dozed off in the chair. At 11.30, she woke us up. I combed my hair and put on my coat. Cops' wives are like everybody else's. They worry. When we met Ed at headquarters, we did some last-minute checking on details with Backstrand for about a half an hour, and then we were all ready to go. By five minutes past two, half the dragnet crew pulled out of the police garage and scattered over the city to their places. By 2.35, the other half pulled out, and a few minutes later, Ben and I followed. At three minutes to three that morning, Backstrand took over communications and checked every car in the operation. It was a good start. Every man in his right place by the right time. The trap was set. All we needed now was to find our suspect, the werewolf, inside. Control 4 to Unit 80K. Control 4 to Unit 80K. 80K to Control 4. Go ahead. This is Backstrand standing by. 80K. Roger. Clear. KGPL. Okay, Ben. Now let's go find him. I got a hunch, Joe. Let's try the Wilshire district first. Sounds all right to me. Let's go. first hour and a half, we raked the Wilshire District back and forth. Not a sign. Then about 38 minutes past four, we headed back for the downtown area and parked in an alley where we could double check on one of our policewomen decoys. Here comes one of the gals now, Joe. Pat Fielding. Bet her feet are almost as tarred as mine. Yeah. You see anything else, Ben? Nothing. Quiet as a church. No. No, no wait a minute. Hmm? Car just turned the corner. Heading up in the same direction she is. Joe. Hmm? Joe, it's slowing down. Wait a minute. It's pulling up beside her. It's a great convertible. It's him, Joe. Come on. Ben, get out. He sees us. He's got a gun. You all right, Joe? Yeah, look at that guy take off. 80K to control four. 80K to control four. We've spotted the suspect. He's driving a gray Ford convertible. License 61 Robert 385. Suspect's headed east on Olympic from Alameda. Driving without lights. Suspect is armed. He had a fast car and he knew how to drive it. We almost lost him twice. Two minutes after we sighted him, Backstrand took over full radio control. ADK to Control 4. We're traveling at a high rate of speed, headed east on Olympic, crossing Soto Street. Control 4 to all units, stand by. Units 11A, 12, and 13R close in on the intersections at Olympic and Lorena. Units 41, 42, 45, and 104K move on on the next four crossings east of that. To the north and south, units 105K, 14A, 70R, 43T. Lock all main arteries. Five cars in the dragnet had pulled in like a noose around a five-mile area. Ben and I hoped it was just a matter of time. Unit 80K to Control 4. Control 4 80K, go ahead. He's headed north on Fresno Street, crossing Whittier Boulevard. Attention all units. 80K now pursuing suspect north on Fresno from Whittier Boulevard. Units 15, 105K, 11R, and 18A block off the intersection on Fresno and 4. Hey, Ben, up there ahead. What's he trying to do now? Look, he's turning around. Yeah. Yeah, and he's coming right for us. Watch it, Joe. Look out. Pretty close. 80K to control four. Control 80K, go ahead. Exchanging shots with suspect. Watch it, Ben. Here he comes again. Sure likes to use that gun, doesn't he? Sure does. Hey, Joe, look. Now, look, he's turning east. 
He's running for Hollenbeck Park. Yeah, 80K to control four. Suspect just drove up over curb and into Hollenbeck Park. Baseball game with only his headlines. Yeah, come on, let's get him. Yeah. Never say die, huh, Joe? Joe, can you get a shot at him? Don't shoot! Don't shoot! I'll give up! Don't shoot! Then step out in the open and get your hands in the air. All right, all right, I give up, but don't shoot! You're a brave kill. Yeah, come on. All right, you get your hands in the air. Come on, higher. Joe, look out, he's got a knife. I got him. <laughs> Joe, those women were right. He does look like a werewolf. Yeah. You got your handcuffs? Yeah. Okay. Got a cigarette? Uh, I've been out for an hour. Middle place across the street. Maybe we can get somewhere. Okay. There's the crew from the 41R. Hey, fellas, take him into robbery, will you? Okay, Friday. I think there's a vending machine in there. Uh-huh. Say, uh, you got some change for the cigarette machine, mister? I think so. Say, uh, who's that guy all them cops were after over in the park a little while ago? I picked up the werewolf. Been reading the papers? Yeah. You fellas cops? Yeah. <laughs> sure made it easy for you, didn't he? All you cops had to do was surround the little fella in the park. Nothing to it, huh? Yeah, that's right, mister. Nothing to it. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Walter Barton, known as the werewolf, was tried and convicted and is now serving a full life sentence at the state penitentiary. This has been Dragnet the third in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of C.B. Horrell, Chief of Police, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Sergeant Mario Victor Dairo of the Los Angeles Police Department, who on the morning of January 1st, 1943, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. came to you from Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. 
detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. A gang of quick-trigger gunmen have moved in on your city. They've given public notice that they'll kill the first cop who tries to take them. You know the risks, your job, apprehend the suspects. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case, from beginning to end, from crime to punishment. Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, April 17th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My partner's Ben Romero. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the record bureau. It was four minutes to six when I got to room 42. Homicide. Hey, Ben, I pulled a package on the Raymond killing. And that proves you can still read, Friday. He said it, Joe. Your pal, Fred Lindsay. Hiya, Fred. What's doing? Busier than you are. We know what we're looking for. Just having a little trouble finding them. That's the way it is with automobiles. They misplace so easy. Not normally they don't. We've got a small-size epidemic in our hands. Well, don't let us keep you, Fred. Just ducked in here for a breath of calm air and to invite you to dinner for the last time. The wife and I are still waiting for the first time. How about it, Joe? Ruth's got a new pressure cooker. Your uh, sister-in-law visiting you again, huh? No, on the level. Not selling a thing. Come on. Who is it this time? My cousin. But she's awfully pretty, Joe. Oh, why do you guys insist on trying to marry me off? Me and Fred went down fighting, but it kind of grows on you after a while. Now, tell me, what is it about a married man? Just can't stand to see one single man left in the world. How about it, Joe? Tomorrow night at 7, okay? Okay. Tell Ruth I'll be there. It figures that he's got to run out of kinfolk pretty soon. Fine. We'll be expecting you. Got a stakeout tonight, but tomorrow I'll be clear. Anything, Ben? Nothing definite, Ben. Just to follow up on those stolen cars. See you, men. So long, Lindsay. Joe, you'll like my cousin. Oh, never say die. What a character. Hmm. You just catnip the women, Joe. Yeah. Well, here's that Raymond package. Let's check those dates that Backstrand wanted, huh? Wednesday, April 17th was just routine. A dinner date I tried to get out of, some paperwork that the chief wanted done, and a hot, sticky day. Too hot to wear a suit of clothes. Sometimes it's like that. A day starts out being routine. By the time it comes of age, it's got a personality all its own. At 10.23 that night, Ben and I were just finishing up the paperwork, and Ed Backstrand opened his office door. Righty, Romero, just got a hot shot call. What you got, Skipper? Hold up and shooting at Hooper and Esperanza, code three. Code three, that means red light and siren. It was 10.32 when Ben and I pulled up at the corner of Hooper and Esperanza. It was a bar in the basement of a building on the south side of the street. A radio car was there, and the two officers were holding the crowd back. A man was talking to one of the officers who turned and pointed to us. As Ben and I got out of our car, the man hurried over to us. You're the detectives? That's right, Sergeant Friday. My name's Cummings, R.L. Cummings. I own the bar. This is terrible. There was a gunfight downstairs. Uh Uh-huh. Come on. Where's the ambulance? One of the officers in the radio car said we needed the coroner. Did you see the actual shooting? No, I didn't. Here's the fellow that was shot. Oh, where's Jones from the crime lab? Hello, Friday. Romero. Hi, Lee. What do we got here? Pretty bad. Looks like a shotgun. Close range. Mm, he really got in the way of it. Ben. Yeah. It's Fred Lindsay. Motor theft. 
He was on a stakeout, Lee. Tell us about it, Mr. Cummins. You know this fellow, Sergeant? Yeah, we know him. What happened? We had a hold-up tonight. Three men. Yes, go on. Well, uh, business was good, real good. We had a large crowd, and I was happy about that because I've been trying to sell out for a long time now. I've been showing the place to different parties all week long. I had a fellow coming over tonight to take a look at it. What time was that? A little less than an hour ago, about 9.30. I see. Go ahead. It was almost time for this man to show up, so I called Eddie. That's my bartender, and... I told him to kind of keep a lookout for the man because I was going back to the office to get the books ready to show. You know how it is when you want to sell a business. You'll watch for him, Eddie? You bet I will. If you want me, I'll be back in the office. Keep your mouth shut and stand still. Huh? You own this bar, don't you? Well, yes. What is this? You're the boy we want to see. Which one of you? All three of us. What's going on? What's it look like, genius? It's a stick-up. I haven't any money. You go to the bank on Thursdays, don't you? Well, I, I made my deposit today instead. I've been watching you for a month now. Don't give us that. You go to the bank on Thursdays. Now, come on, hand it over. I'm telling you the truth. I, I usually go on Thursdays, but I, I went today instead. You're lying, Ace, and we ain't got much time. Look, you can have all the money I've got on me. I think it's about 200 But that's all I have. Here. Why argue with him? Take what he's got and we'll shake the customers down. No, no, please don't do that. You got my money. Isn't that enough? No, it ain't. Oh. Come on, let's go out front. That's about all I remember, Sergeant. When I come around, uh, I was lying on the floor of my office. You better have somebody take a look at that cut on your face. Yeah, I'm going to right away. There's my bartender. He saw the fight. What's his name, Eddie? Yeah. Eddie. Yes, sir? These men are detectives, Eddie. Will you, will you tell them what you saw? No, it was pretty rough. And tell us what happened when they started to shoot. Uh, that fellow the coroner just took out of here sure was long on nerve. Took on all three of them, single-handed. Uh-huh. Tell us what you saw. You ought to get that fellow's name. Sure had a lot of nerve. Took over just like he was a cop. He was a cop. Now, what did you see? I pegged him for a cop. Well, he was sitting up at the bar. Been nursing a bottle of beer for about an hour. I was keeping an eye on the front door, watching for this fellow the boss wanted to see. So I didn't see the three hold-up men come through from the back. But I heard it. <laughs> all right, let's knock it off. You can all see this shotgun. Anybody make a move and I'll blow your head off. Demons cover the front door. Got it. Sickle, shake them down. Okay, Jantz. You guys in the band keep that music going. The rest of you people turn around and face the bar. Put your hands on top of the bar and leave them there till we tell you to move. Come on, hurry up. Knock it off. Okay, Sickle. We'll take your money. Your watch is anything else you got. Now, don't try to be cute and hold out. All right, you, take off the watch. I'll get your bill for it. You, lady, let's have the ring. This Come man they called Sickle went right down the line. Took everything he could lay his hands on. Uh, this cop, your friend, was facing me at the far end of the bar. He was standing there just like the others. He kind of leaned toward me a little. Can you see the guy with the shotgun? Yeah. Where is he? Center of the room. The other guy still at the door? Yeah. Got his gun out? Yeah. Holding it in his right hand. How far down the line is the other guy? About ten people away. Hey, you two down at the end there. Knock it off. Hurry up, Sickle. Doing the best I can. Come on, let's have the purse, lady. You, next to the lady here, get the watch off. I'll take this How far away now? He's getting closer. But we better shut up, like he says. I'm going to take the one with the shotgun first. I'm blow you to pieces. I got a gun. How far away is that guy now? I thought Jans told you to, to shut up. All right, Sickle, try to move and I'll break your back. Let me go. Let go me ahead go. and shoot, Jans. Let, Let me go. Me Sickle. All you people at the bar, down on the floor. Okay, you with that shotgun, drop it. Demons, can you get a shot at him? Not without hitting Sickle. Come on, you. I'm waiting. You got us all wrong, boy. We like Sickle, but not that much. 
The cop was holding Sickle as a shield. When the big guy let go of the shotgun, both the cop and Sickle ducked. The cop didn't get hit. This man Sickle fell over on his face, grabbed at his arm. The man with the shotgun went down on one knee, holding his stomach. The man at the door took a shot at the cop, but he missed. Then the cop fired three shots at the man by the door. Looked like the first two missed. But the last one caught the man in the leg and he went down. Well, by this time, the big guy with a shotgun had recovered enough to hold his weapon again. I tried to warn the cop. Look out! The guy with the shotgun! I see him! The cop pointed his gun and pulled the trigger, but he was out of shells. Boy, Sergeant, my stomach knotted up when I heard that hammer fall against those empty chambers. The cop threw his gun at the guy with the shotgun and then ran right at him. You know, it was just as if that cop was trying to run right down the barrel of that shotgun. I glanced at the cop on the floor, then I tried to follow the three of them as they made their way out of the bar. They jumped into a car out front and drove off. As a kid, I used to watch Bill Hart take on a whole gang in the movies, but this way, right in front of my eyes, Sergeant, he was an awful brave guy. Did you get the license number of their car? No, I didn't. I couldn't see very well. You got a pretty good look at all three of the men, though, didn't you? I believe I'd recognize any of them. Thanks, Eddie. What's your last name? Uh, Bowers. Eddie Bowers. Got that, Ben? Yeah. You'll be hearing from us, Eddie. We may want you to look at some pictures for us. Glad to help any way I can, Sergeant. I hope you get the men that shot this cop. You're sure going to try, aren't you? Yeah, Eddie. We're sure going to try. The next step was for Ben and I to make a complete report to Chief Ed Backstrand. They got Lindsay, huh? That Fred Lindsay an auto theft? Yeah, that's right. Good cut. You say he wounded two out of the three in that holdup? Yeah. That means they'll have to have medical attention in a hurry. We'll check all the small hospitals, cover all the drugstores to get in line on anyone who's bought medical supplies in the last hour. Uh As soon as medical detail notifies Ms. Lindsay, I'd like to go over and see her. Smith and the medical detail's out there now. By the time you get back, we may have a flash in the drugstores or hospitals. We'll be back in 30 minutes. Call in when you get out there. Right, Ed. You might carry this with you. Yeah. I'm sick. I'm sick to my stomach about this thing. I want you to get those two-bit punks. I don't want them to see another sunrise. Got that, haven't you? Yeah, Let's go, Ben. Chandler? Yes, sir? Put out an APB. Have communications broadcast the descriptions of these suspects every 30 minutes until further notice. Hello, Joe. Come in. Thanks, Ruth. Sit down. Ruth, you know how we all feel. It's all right, Joe. You're married to a cop, I guess you're meant to expect things like this. He'll like that. Fred and I used to discuss the possibility of this. I used to worry about him. I used to worry a lot, Joe. All those nights when he was away and the days. I used to worry. Now I know he's safe. Anything you want or you need? Thanks, no, Joe. Anything at all that I can do? Yes, Joe. I think there's something you can do. You and Ben are assigned to this case, aren't you? That's right. Then be careful. Thinking that you and Ben will have to face those killers. Ben's wife. Be careful, Joe. Yeah, Ruth, we will. Oh, sure. I want to see you get the men that did this to Fred. More than anything, I want that. No more heartaches. Yeah. Thanks for coming by, Joe. Mm. 
How'd you take it, Joe? Let's go. Joe. Joe, how'd she take it? You're married, Ben. You figure it. It was 11.30 when we got back to Central Division. As we walked into the squad room, Backstrand was waiting for us. Righty, we just got our first lead. We've located a druggist who said he sold some medical supplies to a man about 45 minutes ago. There's the address. Pretty close to the scene of the shooting. Hop out and see him right away. The Rex Pharmacy was exactly 14 blocks from the Red Feather Bar where the shooting took place. Rex Pharmacy was like your corner drugstore, complete with apothecary jars and shower curtains. The druggist was the same little man who has been prescribing sulfur and molasses since you were a kid in school. Just about ready to close. What can I do for you, gentlemen? We're from the police department. Oh, I've been halfway expecting you fellows. We got a report that you sold some medical supplies to a man about an hour ago. Yes, sir, that's right. It's like I was telling those other officers that were here a while ago. There was something funny about that little fellow. How do you mean? Well, for one thing, he came in here sweating quite a bit. Of course, it's a warm night, but he seemed terribly nervous. Anybody with him? No, he was all by himself. What did he buy? Well, it wasn't so much what he bought, but how much? What do you mean? You know how most people buy iodine, a little ten-cent bottle. He bought a couple of pints. Then there was all that gauze and adhesive tape. Bought enough to repair a small army. Cotton, box of swabs. Then he asked me something that made me wonder. What was that? Asked me if I had something to probe with. That's just the way he said it. Something to probe with. I asked him, oh, what do you want to probe for? What did he say? Said a splinter. I told him a sewing needle would do the trick. He said forget it, and then he paid me and walked out. Uh-huh. Could you describe the man? Mm-hmm. He's a small man, dark. Like I said, awful nervous. You think you could identify him? Oh, sure I could. If I ever saw him again. Well, did he leave on foot, or was there a car outside? Left in a cab, parked right out in front. Couldn't miss it. Uh, did you happen to take down the license number? Well, no, I didn't. But I did jot down the taxi cab number. Would that help? Taking down cab numbers isn't exactly in a druggist's line, but because he had the presence of mind to do that one small thing, we accomplished in ten minutes what could have well taken as many weeks. Maybe with this small wedge, we could do what Backstrand wanted us to do, get the killers before another sunrise. Well, it was close to midnight when we stepped into the drugstore phone booth. I called the cab company, got the night supervisor. I gave him the number of the cab, and he checked his location chart. Cab 375 was operating out of a stand at Wilshire and Greenhaven. He was the right driver, and he remembered the fare. Sure, I know who you mean. A little guy seemed in a big hurry. It was a long fare, though. I took him out to Inglewood. Uh, Where'll I check my log sheet? I'll give you the exact answer. Here it is, Joe. 1523 Imperials. The room in half. Yeah, come on. We'll check with the landlady. Kind of late, Joe. Yeah. Let's stand away from the door, huh? Might not be the landlady who answers. Yes, what do you want? Police department. Oh, well, just a minute. Let me see your badge. There you are, ma'am. I'm Sergeant Friday. This is Romero. Homicide. All right. What do you want? I run a good, clean rooming house here. It's not the house, lady. It's one of your tenants. Which one? That's what we want you to help us on. Look, do you men know what time it is? Come back here in the morning. Sorry, this can't wait till morning. Well, I'm not going to invite you in. 
We'll talk right here on the porch and keep your voices down. My tenants work during the day. Whatever you say, ma'am. Now, what is it you want to know? We're looking for a small, dark man. Well, I got three here. Could fit that description. No, he came in late tonight, about 45 minutes ago. I wouldn't know about that. I don't spy on my people. This is very important. You'll have to keep your voices down. Sorry. He's dark and he's small. Why well, didn't you say he was dark? You must mean Mr. Tyndall. What's he done? What's his room number? In room 10, but I can't allow you to tramp up and down the stairs. At this hour, you'll wake all my rumors. We'll be as quiet as he wants us to be. What do you mean by that? Is there going to be trouble? I don't know, lady. Uh, where do we find number 10? The end of the hall, last room on the right, and keep your voices down. If you'll just wait in your room, lady, we'll call you for watching. Okay, here we are. I keep the door clear, Ben. We might have trouble. Think they're all in there? We'll know in a minute. What do you want? Police department. I'll try this closet, Joe. What do you want with me? What are you looking for? Closet's empty. What'd you say your name was? Tendo. Bob Tendo. New name, but same face, huh, Joe? Yeah. How long you been out of jail, Tenny? My name ain't Tenny. It's Tendo. Your name's not Tendo. It's Sam Tenny. We sent you up on a robbery charge four years ago. Now, isn't that right, Tenny? No, it's not right. You got the wrong man. I never been in jail. Yes, you have, because we sent you there. Now, come on. Who'd you buy the medical supplies for? I don't know what you're talking about. Look, Tenny, it's a hot night and it's late, so let's cut out the smart talk, huh? Who'd you buy those medical supplies for? Tenny, look, you're a two-time loser right now. Who are you shielding? You got nothing on me. I ain't done a thing. We can prove that you bought those supplies tonight, and it can go kind of hard on you. So let's open up. I haven't been out of this room all night long. We got a druggist and a cab driver who will make a liar out of you. I still don't know a thing. That cab driver hauled you home here 45 minutes ago. Where were you? I was out on a date. Is that who you bought the medicine for? Ben, call the druggist and get that cab driver. We'll take Tenny downtown. All right, all right. All I did was buy the bandages and stuff. I got nothing else to do with this. Who'd you buy the stuff for? Now, you know everything else. You'll figure it out. Oh, now, look, punk. We know there were three of them. One of them killed a cop. We're going to get to them, and Tenny, you're not going to stand in our way. They killed somebody. They didn't tell me that. Who didn't tell you? I don't want any part of murder. I'm going to tell you who it was, but I'm clean. I got nothing to do with it. I was trying to help him out of a jam. Who were you trying to help? It was Roy Bemis, Charlie Sickle, and Red Jans. They didn't tell me nothing about murder. Well, why'd you help? They offered me a pretty good piece of change to run an errand foreman. You, you know, I got paid for. That's, that's all I had to do with it. Where did you deliver those medical supplies? I have to tell you that. I'm afraid of Jans. He's awful free with that shotgun. We'll give you protection. Now, where are they? Can I go to jail till you get them? You'll get protection. Give us the address. It's an apartment house. Just around the corner from here. The Blue Eagle. We took Sam Tenney down to Central Division with us. On the way downtown, he told us that Red Jantz and the other two had their room at the Blue Eagle barricaded. Tenney said that they told him that they'd kill the first cop who tried to take him. But we knew they were wounded. He told us that Sickle had an arm wound, Bemis got it in the leg, and Jantz had a slug in his side. We figured they'd be weak from the loss of blood, and we could take them easy. You'll never take those guys easy. Sure, they lost a little blood, but they had enough fight left to stack that room. And they got enough left to kill you if you try to take them. On the way to headquarters, we stopped at an all-night drive-in and called Ed Backstrand. We told him we had a radio car watching the Blue Eagle. We gave him the whole story and told him we were on our way in. By the time we checked into Homicide, Ed had the plan all mapped out. 
It was 2.25 a.m. Here's the map from the city engineers. It's one city block bounded on the north by Hawthorne Street, on the south Lawndale Avenue, on the east 16th Street, and to the west 17th. The Blue Eagle apartment house is right here, on 16th and Hawthorne. West of the Blue Eagle is a private residence. South of the Blue Eagle on 16th is a vacant lot. There are 12 apartments in the building. The men we want are on the second floor, number 11. That apartment faces east on 16th. How do you want to handle it, Ed? Now, Baker and Moorheim will evacuate the private residence. Friday, you and Romero clean out the apartment building. Right, Skim. All traffic is being diverted. The entire block is completely isolated. We'll throw up a cordon. Since we cleared the residence, nobody goes in, nobody goes out. Will you brief us again when we get there, Ed? I'll give you all the briefing you need right now. Get this. These guys have already killed a cop. I don't want to lose any more. You know they're heavily armed and they're desperate. Have the men draw shotguns, tear gas, and tommy guns. I'll take care of that, Skipper. All right. Now, we're not going in after these punks like tin horn heroes. We're going after them, and we're coming out alive. All of us. What time is it, Friday? 2.37. Not much time till sunup, is it? It was a code two. That means red light and move fast. Backstrand figured we needed six squad cars, four men to a car, the police public address truck, ambulance and floodlights. Ben checked out the weapons to the men, and by 2.46, we pulled out of the Central Division garage. We slid into the area at 3.20 a.m. The six squad cars and the public address truck took up their positions. The floodlights were rigged and ready to turn on at Backstrand's command. The machinery was set to roll as soon as we got the neighborhood cleared. Ben and I evacuated the Blue Eagle apartment house. How many does that make, Joe? Well, we've cleared nine. Two to go. Here's apartment ten. The killers are right next door. Joe, I'd like to kick that door in right now. Take your time, Ben. We'll get to him. Quiet now. What is it? Police department. May we come in? Yeah, of course. What's the trouble? No trouble. We're evacuating the building. Now, we'll have to ask you to leave by the back door. We'll notify you when to return. Please leave quietly and lock your door. What's going on? No time to explain. Thank you very much for your cooperation. Okay, now. We'll skip 11 and go to 12. Yeah. Yeah? Who are you? Police department. Can we come in? Sorry to disturb you at this hour. We're evacuating the building. Please hurry and leave quietly by the back door. You'll be notified when to return. Lock your door when you leave, thank you. It was 4.10 a.m. Everything was set now. The neighborhood was completely cleared. The entire block was empty except for apartment 11 on the second floor of the Blue Eagle. I left Ben to watch the door of apartment 11. I went downstairs and across the street to join the rest of the men. It was Ed Backstrand's show from here on. That's it, Ed. All set. Baker, Morheim, all clear? All clear, Chief. Baker, you and Morheim take three men and cover the rear of the building. Right. Is that detail covered Hawthorne Street? They're all set, Ed. How about the vacant lot? Taken care of. The rest of you men? Yeah. Friday and I are going into the building. We'll try to get them to come out now. Uh, Johnson. Yes, sir? Come with us and keep us covered. Let's go. Apartment 11's up at the head of the stairs, Ed. Right. Any action, Romero? Not a thing, Skipper. Keep down, all of you. I'll try to get them out. Jance, Demas, Sickle, you're all alone. The building's clear. Come on out with your hands behind your head. Come on out, Jance, or we'll come in and get you. You hear me? 
I hear you. Come on, let's get out to the street. Johnson, cover that door and be careful. Keep down. All right, Chief. Friday, Romero, come with me. We left Sergeant Johnson to watch the door, and we ran out on the 16th Street and ducked down behind the police sound truck. The floodlights hit the side of the building. Backstrand grabbed the microphone. Giants, Bemis, Sigal. You've got 30 seconds to come down out of that room. Walk out backwards with your hands behind your head. Stay together. Don't fan out. 30 seconds, Giants. They're making it tough, Ed. Romero, lob some tear gas through that window. Right, Skipper. Come on out, Bemis. We're giving you a chance. That's more than you gave that cop in the bar. Come on out. That's Jance, Ed. He isn't coming out. They must have got Johnson because they're in another room. Shoot the gas in there. That's not going to get him out, Ed. Give it time, Freddy. Floodlights in up there. Friday, rake that second floor with the Tommy gun. Let's keep them in one room. Right. Hold your fire, Freddy. George, give us a couple of masks. Ben and I are going in. The rest of you men, concentrate your fire on those two rooms. Hit them down. Here's your mask, Joe. Let's go. Come on. Put that mask on, Ben, and keep down. Yeah, wait a minute. Somebody coming down the inside stairs. Duck, Ben, he's got a gun. I got one, copper. Get out of my way. Stop it, you. You haven't got a chance. I'm coming through, copper. I think I stopped him, Joe. Can you see Johnson? No, it's too much gas in there. All right, you two up there. We got one of you. The other two, come on out. Joe, think we got him? I don't know. Can you see Johnson? No, Joe, it's still too thick in there. I'm going in, Ben. Cover me. Come on. We know there are two of you up there. <laughs> Just one, copper. Throw your gun down the stairs ahead of you. Hurry up. Shotgun, Joe. Jance. I see him. I'll take him at the foot of the stairs. Uh, all right, I got my hands up. I found Johnson, Ben. All right, Jance, outside. Come on, move. Put the handcuffs on him, Ben. I'll cover you. How's Johnson? I don't know. Ed, get the ambulance crew over here. Jance, who's this other guy we got? Bemis. How about Sickle? I said just one, didn't I, copper? Never mind the smart talk, Jance. Now just answer the question, huh? Sickle wanted out of it a long time ago, so I let him out. He's upstairs. I let him out the back way. Then you shot him? He wanted out, didn't he? All right. We'll take him in. Johnson's in the ambulance. Uh, I'll see you in the office. Right, Skipper. How about a smoke, huh? Uh, yeah. Here you go. Backstrand said he didn't want those men to see another sunrise. Yeah. Five minutes to five, Joe. Sun ought to be up. Yeah. But look, man. It's cloudy. Guess we'll never know, huh? The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Edgar Red Jans, the sole survivor, was tried and convicted and sentenced to be put to death in the state penitentiary in the manner prescribed by law. You have just heard the fourth in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of C.B. Horrell, Chief of Police, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated... 
to Radio Car Patrolman Forrest E. Sawyer of the Denver, Colorado Police Department, who on the evening of March 8, 1937, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide. Somewhere in the tangled web of your city, there's a killer on the loose. A young woman has been brutally murdered. The weapon, a steel bludgeon. Your job is to get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, March 19th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 9.14 p.m. when I got to the old central jail building, third floor. The crime lab. Hi, Joe. Hi, coming, Lee. Just ran a spectrograph. What'd you find? The paint flake from the victim's head matches that paint on the hunk of pipe. Any prints? No, the pipe was clean, no latent prints. Well, that figured. Anything else? Got those blood test reports. A couple of slides for you to look at under the comparison mic. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Lee. Oh, hi, Joe. Didn't hear you come in. What's it look like, Ben? Well, here's the blood test reports. This one is blood found on the piece of pipe. Mm, type A. This one's blood from the victim. Type A. They match. That's right, boys. Doesn't mean too much, though. Did you look at these slides under the microscope? No, not yet. Well, this is your clincher. Wait till I get the light. Okay, take a look. Mm-hmm. Got a make? Yeah, go ahead. Well, this slide here on the right... Mm-hmm. That's a slice of hair from the victim's head. On the other slide is hair found on the steel pipe. Yeah? She had hair. Both specimens are flat. Same hair, Joe. Got anything on that piece of pipe, Lee? Mm, nothing. Just ordinary steel pipe. Fourteen inches long. What else you got? The plaster impression of those footprints we found by the body. Here they are. Hmm. Crepe soles? Tennis shoes. New ones. Size nine. Good impression. Ground was soft. Man about 150 pounds, according to the length of stride, roughly about 5 feet 10 inches tall. Yeah, new shoes, all right. You can still read the manufacturer's label. That's right. Made by the Sport King Company. Well, that's something to follow up. Yeah, sure. You could start with the tennis courts. 
Only about a thousand or so in L.A. Maybe you'd rather track down the band. These particular tennis shoes are the biggest sellers in the country. Yeah. Where'd you like to start, Minneapolis or Pullman, Washington? What about that glove? Yeah, you might look for a missing glove. Yeah. They go well with the shoes, just about as common. White cotton work gloves with a blue top. Here's the right glove. You find the left one. Blood on a glove? Type A. Well, that's good evidence, Jones, but where's the lead? Now, look, I don't ask you to pay my parking tickets. You want to see blow-ups? Okay. Right over here. Oh, yeah. This is the vacant lot where they found the body. Yeah, that's right. Here's a close-up of her showing the location of the murder weapon, the glove, and the footprints relative to the position of the body. Looks as bad as yesterday. Sure did work her over, didn't it? The rest of these are morgue shots. Interested? No, I checked them this morning. Once is enough, Lee. Yeah, that winds it, boys. You want to go over the stuff in her purse again? You find anything more? No, nothing you haven't seen already. The usual. Makeup, comb, barrette. It's a hair clip. Mm -hmm. Few cheap stones in it. Loose change, a quarter, nickel, a few pennies. Her ID card. Yeah. Helen Corday. 33 Naomi Place. Age 21. 21. That's not very old, is it, Lee? Not to die. No. Helen Corday. Who could kill Helen Corday? Why? Why do you say that, Mr. Meyer? People kill for money. They they kill for love. Helen Corday had none of these. No boyfriend? Not in here. No, she was a good worker. Five different waitresses the union sends me one month. Five! Did the union send Helen to you? Oh, sure, sure. All the girls come from the union, but none like Helen. Oh, she was sweet, honest, and courteous. Mr. Meyer, did you know anything about her personal life? Only that she was a good worker. Everything else she took home with her from this place. Did she ever mention any men to you, anyone at all? No gentleman, not one. No. How much money did she make here? I paid her $26.50 a week every Tuesday. Not much salary for so much work, but the tips are very good here. Nice customers. Mm -hmm. This her home address, 33 Naomi Place? 33 Naomi, that's right, yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Marr, for your time. I wonder what kind of a person does things like this. Who could kill Helen Cordy? Everybody liked Helen. Helen Cordy? I never liked her. Come on in the office, boys, where we can talk. Never liked her because I never knew her. You the head of the union? Not just a steward. I know most of the girls. This Corday girl, what was she what she look like? Small brunette, about five three. Oh, here's a picture. Yeah. Pretty girl, wasn't she? Oh, sure, sure. Place throughout at Otto's place. Nice little Dutch fella. Ottomeyer. That's right. He seemed to think quite a lot of her. Yeah, she was a fine worker. Oh, sure. Always right up on her dues. Paid all the assessments right on time. Thought you said you didn't know her. Well, not right off I didn't, but when you showed me that picture there, placed her right away. You know anything about her personal life? Hey, wait a minute. Why all these questions? Helen Corday was murdered last night. Oh. Well, who did it? You know anything about her personal life? Well, you can see my position, Sergeant. 1,200 girls. Check them in, check them out. Oh, just names to me till I see a picture of them. You wouldn't know if she had any boyfriends here in the Union, waiters, busboys? That I wouldn't know. Like I tell you, Sergeant, I never knew Helen Corday. Sure, I knew Helen Corday. Gus plays a nice piano, huh, Sergeant? Yeah. 
I read about it in the paper this morning. How long have you been selling pianos here at this place? About as long as I knew Helen. Three years. How'd you find me? Helen's landlady. We talked to her yesterday. She told us she worked here at this piano store. Oh. It's funny, isn't it? What's funny? See Gus over there? That fellow demonstrating the piano? A few weeks ago, I made a deal with him to give Helen piano lessons. I figured it would help her with her singing lessons. Wanted to be a singer, you know. Did Helen know that fellow, Gus? No, she never met him. Who gave her the singing lessons, Miss Olsen? She took from Ostrander. Paul Ostrander, out on Melrose. A lot of movie people used to take from him. What do you know about her personal life? How do you mean? Does she have any boyfriends? Well, yes. You don't seem sure, Miss Olsen. Well, it's just that I don't know. I never asked Helen. But she did have a few dates with Paul Ostrander. I don't think she was serious. How about Ostrander? Gee, I, I don't know, Sergeant. I don't want to involve anybody. You want to help us find the killer, don't you? Well, yes, but if you're thinking Paul Ostrander did it, no, I'm sure he didn't kill her. That's all for today, Victoria. No, gentlemen. I did not kill Helen Corday. You gave her singing lessons, Mr. Ostrander. You knew her pretty well? Yes, I gave her voice coaching for about a year and a half. Helen showed a little promise. Not a great voice, a bad vibrato. You knew her pretty well. Why do you say that? Mr. Ostrander, didn't you used to take her out once in a while? No. No, I didn't know Helen socially at all. We know you had dates with her. That's not true. Only time I saw her was when she came here to the studio for lessons. You better tell the truth, Mr. Ostrander. We can prove that you've been out with her. Afraid of the publicity, is that it? Certainly that's it. I have a successful business here. I've spent years building it. Anything like this would ruin me. Then you have been out with her. Only a few times. Nothing serious. I had nothing to do with her murder. Now, that's the truth. Don't you know that withholding information about a thing like this can go kind of hard for you? Yes, I know that. What else could I do? Mr. Ostrander, somewhere in this city right now, there's a guy who beat a young girl to death. He crushed her skull with a piece of steel pipe. We need every bit of information we can get to track him down. I know that, sir. You could have come to us. We wouldn't run to the newspapers with it. If the information's confidential, that's the way we treat it. Most of the time, it's the people who run to the newspapers first. Then they come to us. That's right, Mr. Ostrander. People are their own press agents. Sergeant, I'd like to know what right you have to invade my privacy and lecture me on my civic duty. All right, I'll tell you what right, Ostrander. We want the man who murdered Helen Corday. I got as much right as he had at 12.14 this morning. Come on, Joe. Yeah. Thanks, Mr. Ostrander. Sorry if I invaded your privacy. Chief of Detectives, office, Hannon. No, I'm sorry, ma'am. You got the wrong extension. Try 2511. You're welcome. Hi, Friday, Romero. Chief's been looking for you. Thank you, Mike. Come on, Joe. Yeah. Hello, Joe. Ben, sit down. What'd you get? A notebook full of notes, a crime lab full of evidence, nothing to tie them together. Uh, these some of the people you interviewed? Yeah, those and about a dozen more we didn't even take notes on. It's hard to figure, Skipper. Everybody seemed to like this girl. Helen Corday, no known relative. Single, unattached girl, living all alone in the city. Few friends and no enemies, none we can find anyway. Are you uh, satisfied that all the people you interviewed are in the clear? Well, if we're going to stick to the simple robbery motive, we are kind of money Helen Corday made wouldn't interest those people. How are you doing on the outside leads? Nothing. 
we could just find one hole someplace, anything. All right, now look. You've got a lab full of evidence across the street. You've got a book full of names here. You've got the pieces. Now fit them together. They just don't add. Well, go over them and keep going over them until they do add. Anything from the informants? No, nothing so far. No tips on anybody that's been dough heavily. Nobody's shooting off their mouth. Uh, the guy we want won't advertise. Figures himself a pretty smooth operator. But he probably made a mistake somewhere along the line. We'll find it. Got a hot shot, Ed? Yeah? 3220 Casino. Woman, probable attack. All right, Friday. You and Ben run it down. We ran down the hot shot call for 3220 Casino. Turned out to be a typical dead-end lead. Her name was Mrs. Lillian Horn. For the past five years, Mr. Horn had been paid regularly on Wednesdays. He spent all day Thursday drinking up his paycheck and beating his wife. The call had no connection with the Corday murder. We made the usual call into communications. Unit 80K to Control 1. 80K to Control 1. Control 1 to 80K. Go ahead. On that probable attack, 3220 Casino. Code 4. 80K to Control 1, KMA 367. That was the beginning. For the next three days, we followed up every lead and every call, but they were all blind. All units were alerted, and they had as much information on the killer of Helen Corday as we did. Ben and I cruised throughout the entire Central Division. We covered every probable call that might have some connection with the murder. Attention, Unit 41R. 1654 Swanson Terrace, a woman... Victim of probable attack. Code 3. Unit 41R. It didn't make any difference what the call was. If there was a possibility it might tie in with the Corday murder, we ran it down. We made it a 24-hour job. So far, if the killer made a mistake, we hadn't been able to find it. The Corday funeral was on Monday. They were all there. The girl's landlady, the voice teacher, Ostrander, the girlfriend, Marie Olson, the man from the union, and her boss, Otto Meyer. But nobody else we hadn't checked. That was Monday afternoon. Monday night, we went back to the old routine, tracking calls during the night in the squad car, picking up small threads that led nowhere. Three more days of the same thing. Thursday morning, one week after we found Helen Corday's body, we got an anonymous phone tip. I know who killed Helen Corday. His name's George Barlow. He lives at 418 White Oak Avenue. He used to date her up all the time. Get him and you've got the murderer. <laughs> We checked George Barlow and about ten others just like him. None of them knew Helen Corday. Saturday night, Ben and I were back in the squad car cruising the Central Division. Saturday night's a good night for robbery. By 10 p.m., we'd run down four various calls. 123, code one. 123, roger. 12G, call your station. Unit 13R, 1254 Tower Road. Woman screaming. Investigate the trouble. Code two. Let's handle that one, Ben. Yeah, okay. I'll notify communications. Unit 80K to Control 1. 80K to Control 1. Control 1 to Unit 80K. Go ahead. Unit 80K to Control 1. On your 1254 Tower Road call, we're in the vicinity. We will handle. 80K, roger. 80K to Control 1, KMA 367. Let's go, Ben. Control 1 to 13R. Disregard your last call. Handled by 80K. Should be right about here. Oh, here it is. Twelve fifty-four. <laughs> that man is trying to kill me. He's running down the street. Where? He's getting to that corner. <laughs> he tried to kill me. Come on. 
Where'd he go, Joe? Turn right at the next corner. That's him up ahead. Got a good lead on us. Hit the siren. He's gaining, Joe. Took a left at the next corner. Oh, he isn't going to stop. Close in as tight as you can, Ben. Down to the floor now. Swing out to the left a little. I'm going for his tires. Right. All right, that'll slow him down. Pull up on him. Yeah. All right, you. Keep both hands on that wheel and get over to the curb. Cover me, Joe. Right. Out of that car, mister. Shake him down. Hey, take it easy, will you? I haven't got a gun. Put the cuffs on him. Hey. You boy worked fast. When am I put the gas chamber? Just save that, mister. That's pretty rough treatment for speeding. All right, come on, you. Look, I, I got a right to know where you're taking me. What's the charge? We'll let the girl tell you. What girl? You can sit there and be quiet, huh? Oh, I know where you're going. The place back on Tar Road. Well, I asked to use the phone. The girl slammed the door in my face. I don't know what you cops are trying to prove. I just wanted to use the phone, that's all. I even tried to scare her a little. I, I told her I'd hit her over the head if she didn't let me use the phone. It's a laugh, huh? All right, you get out. Yeah, I suppose so. Get out. Okay. I got nothing to hide. That little girl's gonna lie, you know that, don't you? Who's there? Police officer. Ah! It's the man. That's him. He tried to kill me. His full name's Frank Philip Larson. They had no previous record. This the girl's report? Yeah, that's it, Skipper. Uh, Judy's not. How old is she? He's 19. He's a babysitter. Real tough boy, isn't he? Forced his way into the house. Beat her about the neck and arms. Uh, a tire iron. We found it in his car. Jones is running it through the crime lab. Asked her if she had any money. She told him no. Struck her again. Where's this Larson live? Hotel out near Santa Monica. He's a clothing salesman. Ed works for a big men's store, Burns and Company. According to the house book sales record, he bought a pair of tennis shoes two weeks ago. Weighs 158 pounds, 5 foot 11 inches. Tennis shoes are missing. They're not in his hotel room. He's not wearing them. What else did you find? A rhinestone. You mean a pin? No, just a small, loose stone recovered from the rug in Larson's room. Crime lab got it? Working on it now. Ed, I think we got the man who killed Helen Corday. A few scraps of circumstantial evidence and a hunch. That's not much to go on. Larson had gone after the little Scott girl with a tire iron. Wasn't much of a tie-in, but we had to be sure. All that day, we checked Frank Larson's alibi for the night of Helen Corday's murder. We interviewed the personnel manager at Burns & Company where he worked. We talked to all the clerks who knew him. The manager of the hotel where he lived. We found out everything we could about Frank Larson. And that night at 10 o'clock, we had the prisoner brought to the interrogation room. How are you, Larson? Fine. Just fine. I like jail. Sit down. Lousy weather, been foggy all over town. I wouldn't know. I've been inside all day. How old are you, Lord? 31, same as the last time you asked me. Where'd you go to school? I didn't. I was born smart. You sell clothes, don't you, Lord? We know you work for Burns and Company. Remember, you told us. What is all this? What are you guys trying to build? Just want to know if you like selling clothes. That's all. What do you coppers know about clothes? One blue surge a year is your speed. You know quite a bit about clothes, don't you? I've been selling them for five years. Can you tell me something I've been wondering about? What's that? Are your socks and tie always supposed to match? That's what the style books say. 
Bet you always know the right things to wear, don't you? You wouldn't wear black shoes with a brown suit, would you? Is that what you're keeping me here for? Style, isn't it? Oh, would you? Would you wear black shoes with a brown suit? Most people wouldn't. Bet you wouldn't wear brown shoes with a tuxedo, either. I've been smoking too much. You got a glass of water? Oh, yeah, sure. There you are, Lord. Hmm? Nice. That's good and cold. How about it? Would you ever wear brown shoes with a tux? Nobody would. That's a navy blue flannel you got on there, isn't it? Yeah. It's a good-looking suit. Stop around sometime. Get you a good deal. Suit like that flannel there you're wearing. You'd never wear tennis shoes with an outfit like that, would you? What do you think? I think you did. I think you wore them the night you killed Helen Corday. Who? Maybe you didn't have the blue suit on, but you were wearing tennis shoes. Sport King, size 9. Sell for five ninety-five. You picked them up at a discount. Cost you three and a quarter. Where'd you get that? Out of the house book, Burns and Company. You wouldn't have those shoes around now, would you? We couldn't find them in your hotel room. Your boss, Mr. Craig, used to think a lot of you, Larson. Before you started drinking on the job, your commissions used to run pretty high up the last couple of months. What happened? That cheap ride get to you? Well, you two really nosed around, didn't you? When are you going to tell me what I eat for breakfast? Cornflakes, cup of coffee, donut, sometimes two donuts when you're hungry. Elsie waits on you at the Royal Cafe. She gets a dime tip. And have some more of that water. Help yourself, there's a cooler. Very good and cold. How about it, Larson? Where are the tennis shoes? They wore out. In three weeks? Can't be very good tennis shoes. No, they didn't wear out. What'd you do with them? You know all the answers. You figure it out. We know you bought the tennis shoes. We don't know where they are now. We know you had them. Size nine. Three feet from the body of Helen Corday, we found two size nine footprints made by a pair of Sport King tennis shoes. We figured the man weighed about 150 pounds. You weigh 158. Figured he's about five foot ten. You're 5'11". You come awful close to being the same build as the man who killed Helen Corday, don't you, Larson? Man, you wear the same size tennis shoes, same brand name. A lot of people wear nines. That's the average size. They sell a lot of Sport Kings, too. Everybody wears them. If we could find your pair, might make a difference. Doesn't mean your tennis shoes made the prints with a body. Doesn't prove it. it didn't, neither. What'd you do with them, Larson? I throw them away. That's too bad. Might make a difference. Oh, what difference could it make? I throw them away, that's all. Now, how about the mate to this glove? I never saw it before. Found this right-hand glove by the body of Helen Corday. Just an ordinary cotton work glove. Everybody wears them. If we could find the missing left glove, why, might make a difference. Size medium. That's average, too, isn't it, Larson? I never saw work gloves. I wouldn't know. No, but you bought work gloves, haven't you? Not a pair of those. I mean like this, don't you? We only got one. What kind of work gloves did you buy? I didn't buy any. You just said you did. I never said I bought any work gloves. You bought tennis shoes, though, didn't you? I bought... told you I bought the tennis shoes. Didn't I tell you I bought them? No, you didn't tell us. We told you. Found out from Burns and Company where you were. All right, you told me. I bought them. You know that. Same kind of tennis shoes that made footprints by Helen Corday's body. It wasn't me. Then why won't you tell us what you did with these I've shoes? already told you. I threw them away. They were only three weeks old. They must have worn out awful fast. I didn't say they wore out. They got too dirty. No, you told us they wore out. Remember, Larson? I don't remember what I told you, but I don't have them now. We know you don't have them now. Where are they? He told us. They got too dirty. Right, Larson? Yes. Yes, yes, that's what I said. Anyhow, you haven't got them now. No, I haven't got them now. All right, now, just for the record, Larson, which was it? Did they get too dirty or did they wear out? Whatever I said before. You said both before, Larson. All right, I said both. You haven't got anything on me. We got that little Scott girl statement from last night. She says you tried to kill her. She's lying. I told you she'd lie, didn't I? 
I only wanted to use the phone. She says you hit her with a tire iron. Did you hit her with that iron? No, I only tried to scare her. I didn't hit her with anything. Then how'd you get those marks around her neck and arm? Police doctor says they were made by that tire iron. I don't care what your doctor says. I didn't hurt her. Now, what do you mean, Larson? You didn't hurt her or you didn't hit her with that tire Neither iron? Neither one. I just wanted to use a phone. How'd you know she had a phone? I didn't know if she had a phone. I just went out to find out. To find out what? To find out if I could use her phone. But you said you didn't know if she had a phone. I don't know anything the way you twist everything around. Sorry, Larson. We only want the truth. How about a cigarette? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could use one. Here's light. Larson, where were you Wednesday night, March 18th? How many times are you going to ask me that same question? Just want to make sure we got it right. I told you this morning. I went to a show. I got out about 11, had a beer, and I went home. What time did you get home? About 11.30. Did you stay home? I went to bed. What did you see at the show? I never remember the names. You ought to try to remember this, and it's pretty important. Well, it was a deluxe theater. It was Spencer Tracy and something. What was on when you walked in? The news. I never go in in the middle of a picture. Neither do I. Spoilers inform me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The girl in the box office doesn't remember seeing you go well, in. Well, she knows. It was Keno night. There was a big crowd. Did you win anything? I never do. Anybody hit the jackpot? I don't remember. They give away a lot of money at those neighborhood theaters. I always remember who hits the jackpot. Well, all right, you do. I don't. You remember if anybody won the jackpot? I told you, no. Do they have a jackpot at that show? I guess they do. I don't know. You know, it was Keno night. You should know if they had a jackpot. Maybe they had a jackpot. I don't know. I went out for a smoke. You said the cartoon was on when you walked in. Why do you always twist what I say? I told you the news was on when I went in. You remember anything about the newsreel? It was ten days ago. How do I know it was in it? I only know it was a newsreel. That's all. You're lying, Larson. We checked your alibi. The manager of the theater had to cut the newsreel Wednesday night because the show was running long with Keno night. You didn't go to the show Wednesday night, did you? All right, maybe I didn't. I don't remember. What's the difference? The difference is you could have been in that vacant lot the same night, the night Helen Corday was murdered. I didn't kill her. You can't prove I did. Interrogation room, Friday. Hiya, Jones. It did, huh? You're positive. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Lee. Sure you don't want to tell us what you did with those tennis shoes? I'm not going to go back over all that. I've told you guys all I'm going to tell you. You know how the Corday girl was murdered? How would I know? I don't know anything about it. She was on her way home from work, as usual, about midnight. Of course, you were home in bed about that time. But you didn't go to the show that night, Larson. On her way home, Helen Corday always took a shortcut across a vacant lot. She was about halfway through the lot when the murderer tried to grab her purse. She screamed and he struck her. Hit her several times with a piece of steel pipe 14 inches long. He beat her to death with that piece of steel pipe. Then he dropped the pipe in the right-hand cotton work glove. He left two footprints, size nine, sport king tennis shoes. I know all that. Well, here's something you don't know. When the killer scooped the paper money out of that girl's purse, he accidentally took along a loose rhinestone, a stone that fell out of a cheap barrette in the bottom of her bag. He carried that stone home with him. When he reached in his pocket to pull out the money he stole from her, the rhinestone fell on the floor. So? We found that rhinestone on the rug in your hotel room. Well, I haven't lived in that hotel room all my life. Maybe the tenant before me dropped it there. No, not this one. We checked the cement that held it in that barrette. It matches the glue on the stone. No, Larson, that rhinestone came from the hair clip that Helen Corday wore before he was murdered. That's enough to take you to the district attorney with. What am I supposed to say? We want you to tell us the truth. Why did you kill Helen Corday? Yeah. You want the sandwiches and coffee now, Sergeant? Bring them in, Mike. Looks like we're going to be here a long time. Yeah, I brought you ham, cheese, and liverwurst. And some fruit. Coffee's black. Cream and sugar on the side. Mm, thank you, Mike. Yeah, it looks good. What kind you want, Larson? Ham, cheese, or liverwurst? Oh, you're not hungry? Okay. Sandwich, Joe? No, thanks. I think I'll have an apple, huh? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I fixed you a plate there, Larson. My coffee's right here. It's a fine apple. Mm. Nice and fresh. 
This a Washington apple? Yeah, I don't know. Isn't that coffee hot enough? No, it's fine. Where'd Mike pick these up? Well, yeah. <clears throat> in Gloucester Street. At East? No, hmm. Huh? Oh, it's very good. Well, drink your coffee anyway, Larson. It's getting cold. All right! All right! I didn't want to kill her. She screamed and I hit her. All I wanted was a purse. That's all I wanted. She, she wouldn't give to me. She had to fight back, so I hit her. I, I didn't want to kill her. All she had to do was give me the purse. I wouldn't have hurt her. I, 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 was, I was drinking and I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I was drunk. I was drunk. I didn't, I didn't mean to kill her. I didn't, I, I didn't. Mike. Stay with him. We'll call the stenographer. See you tomorrow, Joe. Good night. Yeah. Sour racket, huh? The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Frank Philip Larson was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the fifth in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet is furnished by the Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to police officer Charles A. Brady of the Chicago, Illinois Police Department, who on the night of September 2nd, 1945, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.